What a powerful statement Moses made at the direction of God to the children of Israel. It is the same thought in mind of the song we sang just a few moments ago, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. And we ask the question, are you ready to meet the enemy? When we sing that song, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, do we really mean it? Do we really believe that if we battle, spiritually speaking, that the battle belongs to the Lord and we not only can but will win. A few weeks ago I was asked to teach a lesson in a vacation Bible school on the topic of David and Goliath. In preparing for that lesson there were several things that became apparent to me in studying that I thought these things really need to be taught because they're helpful to me And I believe they're helpful to me. They also can be helpful to each and every one of us. This morning, what I want us to do is to focus on whether or not we are adequately prepared to enter into the battle with the enemy. And in order for us to do that, I want us to look at two very, very basic and yet very um, important ideas. I want us to take and open our Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. And you can go ahead and open your Bible to chapter 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the personalities that are in this chapter. And then second of all, we're going to look at some precepts that we can learn from this chapter. Let's begin first of all with the personalities And if you begin with the personalities, you have to begin with the whole nation of Israel. This nation had its own psyche, its own way of thinking. You know, in our modern age today, you look at various nations and they have their own thought process. The nation of Israel today has its own thought process. The United States acts in a certain way. Israel, during this period of time, had a thought in mind that I think needs to be explored. First of all, you know that they asked for a king. They had told Samuel, make us a king that we can be like the nations round about us. But the question is, why did they ask that question? I think most of us assume, and maybe some of the lessons I have preached have perpetuated this idea, that they just wanted to be like everybody else. But when you go to chapter 12 and verse 12, you find out there's a mover that pushes them in that direction. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Pause for just a moment and think about what is going on and why they are saying this. They wanted a secular king to lead them in their battles. They looked at Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, and said, He's a threat to us. All these other nations round about them, they have their dominant king leaders 
who are able to lead them into battle, and we want one. You see, they saw themselves without God. I'm afraid that's the way our nation sees itself right now, is we're, we're a nation without God. For just a few moments, I'd like to explore with you a little bit of chapter 13. If you'll turn back with me to chapter 13, we're going to look at a few verses from this chapter because it provides for us an understanding of these personalities, and Israel itself was a personality. When you think about the battle between David and Goliath, you need to think about the battle between Israel and the Philistines. And you think about the Philistines in comparison to Israel, and here's what you see. The Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people is the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped against Michmash, to the east of Beth-Avon. If you want to, just look at those numbers. 30,000 chariots. Now, some of you may have a translation that says 3,000. The number here is not that significant because we're just talking about chariots. I want you to look at the number of fighting men. They're like the sand of the seashore without number. In order to do that, you've got to look at Israel. Look back at verse 2. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah. Excuse me? 30,000 chariots. Saul only has 3,000 men, and only 2,000 are with him. You drop down to verse 15, though, and after everybody gets scared and starts running away, it says, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600. The Philistines have men so many, they're like the sand of the seashore. They either have 3,000 or 30,000 chariots, but you see, with 600 men, what does that matter? They needed a ruler. They needed a king. We're going against a very formidable foe. We need somebody to lead us. I want you to look with me at verses 6 and 7 about the mind and the psyche of the people. When the men of Israel saw they were in danger, <clears throat> for the people were distressed, then the people in, hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and the people following him in trembling. When you think about these people hiding in pits, I think about Saddam Hussein crawling down in a hole trying to hide because of this massive, overwhelming force that's coming in. That's the way Israel thought. We're outnumbered. They're also outgunned, if you will. Notice with me verses 19 through 22. Now, there was no blacksmith in Is to be found throughout the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords and spears 
But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pen for the plowshares and the mattocks and the forks and the axes and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan. I want you to think now with me. See the picture in your mind. Here's 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. Here is the fighters numbering as the sand of the seashore. Here are the Philistines with chariots, with swords and spears. And here is Israel and only two guys, Saul and Jonathan, have any weapons of war. You see, in their mind, we've got to have somebody to be a leader, to be a king. There's only one person, it appears, who has any sort of understanding that he ought to have, and his name is Jonathan. When you come to chapter 14, the Philistines are encamped at Michmash, and there is a garrison there. We're immediately not told how many are there, but we do know of when we start looking at the picture of what's going on, that Saul, or excuse me, Jonathan and his armor bearer are vastly outnumbered. But Jonathan said, I think we can do it. Look with me at verse 12. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Verse 14, For the first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor made was about 20 men and about a half an acre of land. They were outnumbered 10 to 1. But Jonathan said, the Lord is with us. The Lord will fight for us. I want you to understand the thinking of Israel. We want a king. We need a leader. We're going to have to fight our battles. And God is not in the picture with the exception of Jonathan. Now let's talk about Saul for just a moment. Saul was this great leader. The first king of Israel. And when you begin thinking about him, you go back to chapter 9 and verse 2 and chapter 10 and verse 23, and you get a picture of his physical presence. Samuel says he had a choice and a handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person among, than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of his people. His shoulders upward, I measured that the other day. From your shoulder to the top of your head is about a foot. It is exactly 12 inches on me, give or take an inch or two. Saul was a foot taller than everybody else. Let's say the average man was five foot six. That means Saul is six foot six. If the average man is six, five foot nine, Saul is six foot nine. He's a tall man. He's the guy we need to be our deliverer. He was very humble at the beginning. In chapter 9, verse 21, when Samuel arise, arrives to announce to Saul that he has been chosen, Saul is a, 
really taken back by that. He said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you speak like this to me? I don't deserve this. But let me go a little bit further and talk to you about this man, Saul. He lacked confidence. He lacked courage. When you get to chapter 10, they're at the coronation that caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, verse 20. All of them are here and they're, they're moving down, choosing by family. If you look at the middle of verse 21, and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought for him, he could not be found. And they inquired of the Lord further, Has this man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. Here you've got this man who's a foot taller than everybody else. He has a physical presence. And now it's time to crown him as king. And he's hiding. Hiding among the equipment. Saul's a coward, folks. When you get a little bit further, you start seeing how he exhibits this weakness and indecisiveness. He's going to, in chapter 10 and verse 27, be challenged by a group of people who don't think he's capable. It says that in the middle of verse 27, so they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Their question was, how can he save us? Saul is a weak man, even though he's a big man. But you go on a little bit further to chapter 14, and you have an incident where Saul had made a proclamation that anybody who ate was going to have to be killed. Jonathan had stopped. He and his armor bearer had gotten a little bit of honey. Recognizing that, Saul says, whoever's done this is going to be killed. Notice with me verse 44. Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Saul said, my son's going to die because of what he did. People said, no, he's not. And you know what? Jonathan didn't die. You move next to chapter 15. Saul's to go utterly destroy the Amalekites. And what happens is when Samuel rebukes him for not doing that, notice Saul's response. I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You look at Saul, he's a man, wherever he goes, he does whatever the prevailing winds of the people will be. Sounds like a modern politician, doesn't he? Well, let me tell you a little bit more about him. He became self-absorbed. I'm amazed when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 15. God had told him to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. He didn't do what God told him to do. 
And Samuel is on his way to meet Saul to rebuke him for not doing what God told him to do. But when Samuel arrives, Saul's not there. Look with me at verse 12. So when Saul ro- Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he has set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Here's a man who's just won a battle, and what does he do? He sets up for himself a monument immediately. Talk about a real politician. That's what Saul was. Now let's talk about Goliath for just a moment. Goliath was a champion. You know, this past week, Vanderbilt distinguished themselves by becoming the national champions in baseball. Saul was going to face a man who was a champion. He had beaten everybody. He had won all of his battles. Look at verse 4. And the champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He was from a race of giants, that is, tall people. I'd love to spend time to talk to you about all these giants that are found through the Bible, but I want to focus particularly on one group of them. If you go back to chapters 13 and verse 33 of Numbers, when the children of Israel are sending out the spies and they come back, they say, there we saw giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and we were in their sight. Notice the descendants of Anak. They're called Anakim. As you get a little later, if you get to the book of Joshua, chapter 11, they're settling the land, the promised land. And Joshua tells them at that time, they cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with the cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in... Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. By the way, if you're a good Bible student, you know those are the three cities of the Philistines. Guess where Goliath's from? Goliath is one of the Anakim. The text tells us that he is six cubits and a span. If a cubit is 18 inches and a span is 16 inches, that means that he is nine foot six inches tall. There's some debate whether or not this is a royal cubit or not, which means that he could be anywhere from eight to nine and a half feet tall. If he's nine and a half feet tall, he's to the top of the white on the side over here. That's one big fellow. One big fellow. He has heavy weapons and heavy armor. Verses 5 through 7 says he had a bronze helmet on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's 125 pounds just for his coat of mail. He had a bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam. 
and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And our weight, that's 15 pounds. And a shield bearer went before him. Give you some kind of idea of 15 pounds. I want you to go home and see if you've got a sledgehammer. Most of you probably have a six-pound sledgehammer. Try to pick it up. Fifteen pounds. This man is not only tall, he's not only big, he's strong. And as you look at the text, he taunted Israel. Verse 16, And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening, coming out and telling the people, I'm going to face you. Next personality, I've got to move quickly, is David. He's the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. When Samuel is looking, he's trying to find the one whom the Lord has chosen. But David has chosen not for his height, but for his heart. They've already had one king who's a tall man, Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else, but he didn't have the heart. Verse 7 of chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, for the Lord has refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He was a man of courage and confidence. He wasn't a coward. Verse 37 of chapter 17, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David understood that God was his protector and provider. Now, I recognize I've got about ten minutes left for five precepts that I think are very valuable in our facing our challenges. When we go to battle, to battle against sin, to battle against this world and all its ungodliness, the very first thing we have to know is where to look for help. To whom shall we go? You've got to think of the mind of Israel. Israel was saying, we need a king. We need a secular leader to lead us into battle. If we only had that great and powerful king. 1 Samuel 17.45 Then David said to the Philistines, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you had defied. You come with physical weapons. I come with spiritual weapons. In Second Chronicles 32 and verse 8, With him is the arm of flesh, but with us the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. When you face your battles, do you look at it that you're trying to fight them alone or are you trying to fight them with secular help or spiritual help? In the book of Judges, Gideon was sent to the Midianites. Started out with 32,000. Bring down to 10,000. And then the Lord said, no, 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 they can't do that. The people with you are too many for to give the Midianites into their hands, lest the Israel claim the glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. 
numbers are not that important to God. One of the, my most favorite passages from Second Kings chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. The king of Syria was trying to figure out who was telling all of his secrets. And it was told him that Elisha, the prophet in Israel, is telling what you whisper in your bedroom. So he sends an army down there to Elisha. And they surround the city. And Elisha's servant looks up and he says, Master, look at the number of people. Look with me at verse 16. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. People sometimes don't know where to look for help. When you fight your battles, look to the Lord. Number two is putting things in proper perspective. This is not just a battle between two pagan nations. Sometimes I hear about the wars that are occurring overseas between people of this country and of that country. And I want to say that's none of our business. Not because I don't care about the suffering of some of the people who are there, but because this is one pagan nation fighting against another pagan nation. But this battle between David and Goliath, between Israel and the Philistines, is a spiritual battle. It's a battle between right and wrong. Look with me at chapter 7, verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, he's not defying just an army, but the armies of the living God. You get down to verse 43. And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. You see, the Philistine here, he was not a worshiper of the real God. In Galatians 2, 4 and 5, I'm going to summarize that real quickly. Paul said when there were people came in, he says, we didn't give them any way of subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of God might continue among you. You can't surrender in a spiritual battle of right versus wrong. And that's what David said. This is more than just a physical battle. You have to realize sometimes when we're facing matters, they're not just matters of opinion. They're not matters of judgment. They're matters of right versus wrong. Number three, David knew the power and the vulnerability of his enemy. He saw Goliath for who he was. Because he did, he didn't underestimate Goliath. He didn't engage him in hand-to-hand combat. Goliath's this huge man. Why did he take a sling? Why did he take five little stones? Because he knew who his enemy was and he knew how to defeat him. He chose the right weapon. You and I need to realize that when we face the devil, don't underestimate him. 
He has power. First Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11 says that we should not be ignorant of his devices. The devil is crafty. He's sly. You don't underestimate him. But you have to realize the devil's vulnerable. One thing I notice is that Goliath had a helmet. Chapter 17, verse 5. He had a bronze helmet on his head. But do you know what happened? David, when he hit him in the forehead, that stone sunk in his forehead. That must mean that either the helmet wasn't very well designed or... More likely, Goliath looks down and he sees David and he underestimates David. He's not got his helmet on. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is vulnerable. Number four, dealing with discouragement. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 28 through 30, let me summarize to you what they said, the brothers. David came down there and he asked about it. And the brother said, you're just here because you want to see the battle. Verse 29, and David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? And then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Everywhere David turned, everybody's looking at him and saying, oh, David, you can't do it. When he gets to Saul, Saul tells him, you're just a youth and he's a man of war from his youth. You can't do it. When he goes out to face Goliath in verse 44, he says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David, you can't beat me. Don't let naysayers tell you you can't fight the battle. Don't let naysayers tell you you can't defeat the devil. Don't let someone tell you you can't conquer over sin with the Lord's help. Number five, very quickly, finish him off. I like this the best part of all. In verses 50 and 51, you know that David, after he knocked Goliath down and he fell down dead, verse 51 says, or last part of verse 50, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran over to the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. You think about that. Goliath's dead. He's going to cut his head off anyway. When it comes to sin... Sin has to be put to death. Colossians 3 and verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, and so forth. You see, you take that dead man and you bury him. You let everybody know that not only is the man dead, but now you're going to bury him. You cut off Goliath's head. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says... Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him and through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. You want to conquer? You want to win? 
Make sure you finish sin off. You bury that dead man. Are you ready to meet the enemy? Courage based on confidence in God is necessary. The battle belongs to the Lord. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you need to enlist in the Lord's army. You do that when you become a Christian. Everybody who's a Christian is a part of the army of God. You become a child of God when you believe that Jesus is the Christ, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and are baptized. Here's our problem. I look at 1 Samuel, and I see in chapter 13 a lot of the people running and hiding. They're away without official leave. They've lost their confidence in God and they're only thinking in worldly terms. Folks, here's, here's what we need. We need people stepping up to say, I'm in God's army and I'm going to serve. I'm going to contribute. I'm going to be an active part. I'm not going to be someone who's a reservist sitting on the sideline watching the battle. I'm going to be in it. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation this morning, would you come while together we stand and sing?